Welcome back for another episode of the Techspective Podcast. Uh, I am uh, honored to have my friend Jack Danahy on this week. So, uh, Mr. Danahy, if you want to give a little bit of background about yourself and uh, you know share some uh, inside secrets about me or you know whatever, whatever. <laughs> Well, you know, here's something that's not so secret. I'm happy to be here, Tony. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me. Um, for those of you who aren't exposed to me already, my name is Jack Dennehy. I've been doing security for about the last 30 years. I've uh, built a few companies. Um, I've had great experiences both in those companies and in the companies that acquired them all. Um, but I, my real belief is that security is a tractable problem, right? And I think that sometimes uh, we have a lot of challenges in understanding that this is a, an issue that we can talk about and resolve and folks like Tony and others bring it to a conversation that takes on sort of human proportions as opposed to being as global as it can be sometime. And, you know, I think that the purpose of my entire career now is turned towards helping people understand, you know, how to think about the problem, perhaps in a different way, uh, but more importantly, help them understand they have the power, right, to make the problem a lot smaller, uh, to make the results a lot better. Uh, and to think about it in the way that they think about other kinds of business problems and that this is not some insurmountable technical challenge. So, Tony, thanks a million for having me. Uh, glad, glad to have you. So, you know, you said you, you, you've you been doing security for, you know, 30 years. I've been doing security for 20 years. Uh, that's a lot of years. Um, one of the things that comes up on a somewhat regular basis, and I've talked about it with, with a couple different people recently, is this notion of, no matter how much things change, things seem to stay the same. You know, that if you, if you, you know, there've been a, a thousand new technologies that have been introduced in the last 30 years and, and every one of them has been, you know, the new magic sauce. It's going to cure all your woes and, and everything. And then ultimately I feel like we still have fundamentally the same problems. And, 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 you know, when you go back and you look at kind of the, uh, you know, the, the, the Pareto principle of, of security, um, you know, a lot of it just boils down to basic best practices. You know, it's like you don't, you don't need the magic tool. If you did, if you just did these best practices, right, you would avoid 80% of the problem. Yeah, I, I think it's true. You know, I oftentimes, uh, and you've heard me do it in the past, I know, but may, make the analogy to what happens in healthcare. You know, I think that everyone knows, I know that I should perhaps eat better and exercise more, right? I understand the behaviors that will make me a healthier individual. And some of them I do, and some of them I don't, right? And that's just a choice that we make. But the information is there for us to understand. Um, and I think that what ends up happening is because there's a certain vagary, right, around the impact of the individual efforts that makes people less committed, right, to taking them all on board. Um, I, I love your description of it because you're right. The entire time I've been in this, so let's say 50 years between the two of us and we failed, right, that the world is not markedly more secure for all the work I've done, all the technologies I've built to try to make it better, or all the great work you've done in helping people understand it better, right? So what's, what's the deal, right? Well, and I think it's because from the beginning, we treated this as a technological challenge because the attackers took advantage of technological weaknesses and of a lack of technical savvy in some cases on the parts of in the early days systems administrators and network administrators, what have you, when it was new. And so we attempted to apply technology to solve what we thought was a technical problem. And then as the technologies grew and uh, pervasive internetworking changed the threat surface, right, and made it so, made it so much broader, um, the problem got past us, right? It stopped being a technical challenge when an organization decided, 
I'm going to expose my entire customer database to the web so that my customers have a better experience, or I'm going to expose medical records to um, online providers of service because there are some awesome people who need healthcare in rural areas who aren't going to be able to get to a healthcare provider themselves. And so I need that information provided for them. And so there were great, you know, well-intentioned interests in making the, the, the internet working grow and giving people more access. But unfortunately, that was not a technical decision, right? They didn't say, all right, what technology will safely move this stuff around? It was, it was guided by their best interests in terms of making that thing happen. And security followed, right? It followed like the tail of the dog. And unfortunately, a lot of the choices that were made to improve people's lives with this internet working were made without an understanding of the way in which that exact same sort of capability would expose them to new kinds of threats. And so I think that's why, Tony, that, that we've watched this growth, right, in terms of both the sophistication and componentization and monetization of the attack community, because the threat surface has gotten so broad and the challenge has gotten so hard, and that the evolution of security technologies have been so niche, we're trying to knock them down one at a time, as opposed to thinking about it more comprehensively. Well, in our, in our defense, and in, in, in defense of our collective 50 years of failure, <laughs> um, someone pointed out to me uh, years ago, um, that it's not as binary, it's not as black and white as saying, oh, well, we had the security problem 20 years ago, we still have the security problem, why didn't we fix anything? It's like you just said, the threat landscape has also evolved and expanded. And so we keep solving problems, but the problem keeps moving too. Um, and it's, you know, it's this cat and mouse, you know, rat race kind of thing of, of trying to stay one step ahead yeah, it's interesting, right? Because at a certain point in time, you got to realize that chasing the mouse is the wrong idea, and you got to find a better way to contain the cheese, right? I mean, I think that this is this is one of the basic problems that we have in exactly what you described. We see a new attack technique, and really smart people come up with a way to detect it or to prevent against it, and so the attack community comes up with a different way to get at what they're going going for, and it's it's that sort of organic evolution, right? Uh, you'll see it sometimes in the design of cities. Um, if you've ever driven around Boston, Massachusetts, or even um, in areas of upstate New York, um, places where the communities grew organically at a time before cars, right, before I could lay out a grid and have a really well-organized, well-articulated highway strategy, you find out that roads sort of go all over the place because people just wanted to know how to go from point A to point B. And traffic is a bear in those areas because those traffic techniques were not designed with a thought for what the overall thing would eventually look like. And we see that in cybersecurity, right? Because in cybersecurity, people created the solution to provide access or to provide service or, you know, to authenticate people into something interesting. But they weren't thinking what the city, what that cyber infrastructure was eventually going to look like. And so we find people trying to apply, you know, toll booths or speed limits or guardrails in all these different places. And what ends up happening is sometimes they can prevent a small portion of the problems. We still have problems at the intersections where people run into each other. And we also have problems with the commuter saying, the hell with this, there's too much friction now inside the system, so I'm not going to drive that way at all. And so what I, what I think we see happening is that you're absolutely right that this isn't black or white. It's not as though we haven't made any progress. And I was just having this discussion over lunch, oddly enough, um, about how much progress has been made. But the problem is 
that the this is sort of an existential question for the security industry, right? If people have invested trillions, literally, of dollars in such security, and there isn't, I don't think, a company in the world or an organization in the world who'd say, today, having spent enough money and done enough thinking, I feel completely secure, it just bespeaks a need to think about the problem differently. How do we, what do we call security, right? What do we call the appropriate outcomes from security? And how should an organization think about applying it at the various levels that are necessary, and it's not spread like peanut butter, in the different parts of the organization? organizations are trying to take care of well yeah so uh, two points on that that I, that I want your feedback on number one is um i've said for a while that and 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 i think you and i you and i had this conversation when we worked together which is i don't think anybody very few people only 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 a very strange person wakes up and 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 gets excited about a firewall or an endpoint protection platform or you know intrusion detection like those nobody nobody wants to buy those things nobody cares about those things what they care about is being protected so ultimately our goal is to sell them effective protection like the, mm -hmm. the tools are, are irrelevant and and one cares um that's one aspect the the other thing i wanted to hit on is uh, i think that uh, I think that ransomware and the current the current threat we face with ransomware is a good example of that cat and mouse game. And 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 you know and, and you know we're recording this on a Monday after we just spent the weekend responding to you know the Colonial Pipeline you know ransomware attack from 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 dark side and stuff. And what started off as you know okay I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of mass send out this this you know phishing email and somebody will click on it and it will encrypt their data and I will ask them for some money. Um, that you know starting there, it has really evolved into like a, a full fledged business. You know, like like I mean I like I believe Darkside in particular and some of the Ryuk and some of these other ones, I mean they've got you know they're ransomware as a service. They've got customer service departments. They've got invoicing departments. I mean, it's a it's a legitimate company. Like you can call up and get support. And you know, the the business response to ransomware was to say, okay, we need to get way better at backups. If we just had current backups, go jump in a lake. We'll restore from backup. We don't need to pay the ransom. So the ransomware attackers said, okay, that's fine. We're going to take the data first. Then we're going to encrypt the data, and then we're going to throw in an added extortion of if you don't pay the ransom, we're going to leak or sell or expose your data. It happened recently with Acer. It's happened with the, the Quanta ransomware attack, which impacts uh, Apple's intellectual property, where they've said, "Hey, we want fifty million dollars, or we're going to, you know, the 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 plans for your upcoming product lines." And you know, so there's so there's that level, and then. You know, I feel like that. You know, you know. So again, that that that's an example of there was a problem, and we said, okay, well, we can work around that problem. The solution to that problem is you need better backups. And then the, the attack said, okay, well, we can work with that too. Yeah, I think the difficulty is we treat ransomware as though it's an attack type, but it isn't, right? Ransomware is a monetization strategy. Right, it is how do I monetize the vulnerabilities I'm capable of exposing, either human-made or software-led or machine-based or networked? Right, how do I take advantage of a weakness to monetize it? Right, so that's that's what ransomware really is. Right, it goes back 
I believe the first one was 1989, right, on floppy disks. This is not a new concept. There's the I love you virus back in the day, right? And so this is this is an ongoing problem. And ransomware is just the newest form of monetization. I mean, we we fought with exploit kits in the 2014, 2018 timeframe, and they're still out there, right? Rig, Angler, Nuclear. And these were techniques where go to a corrupted website, it will identify what you're running that's vulnerable, and it will take advantage of you for whatever purpose it needs to. So this, this, all of these things are monetization strategies for weaknesses that exist inside the system. And it just happens that with the, you know, the rise in pseudo-anonymous cryptocurrencies, it became an easy way to monetize and not get caught, right? But that's, that was why, why, and why it continues to be. Ransomware is an extremely inexpensive campaign to kick off, especially with, as you mentioned, ransomware as a service providers being out there. It's um, relatively straightforward to monetize for those people with a hit rate that will actually pay it back. Um, and then it's very difficult to necessarily catch them, right? It's also anonymized. And so you can understand why it takes off because it's it's sort of where the money is. So if we if we think about you know why why do these things happen? How do they spread? It's not monolithic, right? There's not a single attack. You know, you mentioned a number of the more popular campaigns or the more successful campaigns, and they all operate a little differently. You know, I'd encourage you to throw NotPetya into the mix as well, right? So NotPetya, which posed as ransomware, was actually just a system destruction machine that was stealing credentials. Right. And so it was it looked very much like WannaCry. This is back in 2017 in mid-year. Um, it looked a lot like WannaCry. People automatically thought it was ransomware because it asked for ransom. But when they took it apart, it's like, no, it was actually it just destroyed the system. So let's remove the trail and create a false trail that looked more like ransomware. And so I think that the nature of the monetization you know, it, it makes us worry more about it. I think now, you you know, in discussion of, of the pipeline attack, right, you've got the, the, the folks who created the ransomware as a service saying, listen, that was an accident. We didn't mean for that to happen. We've seen any number of times where uh, inoffensive systems that were not meant to be subjected to ransomware, where there's no real human attached to them, being taken out of service. And we see things, you know, as diverse as healthcare systems, uh, payment systems going offline because they simply can't handle What's happened? It's not, it's not, there was no human even to pay it. Uh, and so I think what we have to be thinking about is, all right, what underpins this, right? As opposed that there's two pieces of this, right? As opposed to simply thinking about who are the actors and how do I make sure that they either get caught or are disincented by people not paying for it because they do things like good backup. How do we as well look at the system itself that was corrupted to understand quite specifically, you know, what were the highest level weaknesses we can talk about that allowed people to get through? Is it too flat a network topology? Is it, uh, as is oftentimes flagged and not necessarily always the case, a lack of user awareness? Is it a problem with the email protocols? Is it a problem with gateways? Is there a lack of standardization around the way that people recognize malicious traffic versus non-malicious traffic? You know, there's all these different things that we should be thinking about as an industry, right? Which are much more about what are the, the net components that allow these attacks to succeed, as opposed to trying to develop technologies to identify the attack and prevent it? Because to your excellent point, they're just going to come up with something different that will take advantage of the next set of weaknesses that they see. Yeah. So some, something uh, at this epiphany while you were talking about. Uh, so, yes, the dark side group issued this sort of uh, mea culpa apology sort of thing. I mean, they're, they're, as far as I know, they haven't like unencrypted everything and said, oops, my bad. 
you know, they, they still they still want the ransom. But they did issue a statement saying, ooh, you know, we didn't really want to be part of an international incident. You know, we, you know, we, we, you know, we're sorry. We, you know, we and they, and they tried to come across sort of Robin Hood-esque, you know, like we're trying to rob from the rich and give to the poor. We don't want to have a tax that impact people, um, which. All right. Great. You know, we have altruistic cyber criminals. Uh, but what occurred to me in that is I was like, wait, that almost makes it a little bit worse from the perspective of critical infrastructure and colonial pipeline. Because what, what we're saying is they weren't even trying. Right. <laughs> they didn't even know who they were attacking. And and this happened. And it's like, you know, how how many other electric grids, nuclear facilities, pipeline, water treatment plants are out there? that are just as vulnerable, just as weak, that it would take just any any one single person clicking on the wrong link. And and to go back actually a couple steps to talking about kind of security in, in, in general and what are the actual problems, you know, one of the things that, that has come up a, a few times recently as sort of like it, it just doesn't it just doesn't make sense is we're you know we, we as as security constantly tell people, well, you know, uh, we do security awareness training and say, well, we, we want to teach you to recognize, you know, don't click on, don't open that attachment if it's from somebody you don't know. And don't click on that link if you, if, if you didn't ask for it and you don't know what it is or whatever. And it's like, okay, but that's why file attachments and links exist. And there are so many other, you, you will, you will at the same time, and sent, you know, my boss will send me an email with a file attachment. HR will send me an email that has a link. And then the next email comes in and you're telling me I need to not click that link or not open that file attachment. And it's like, that's literally what my job is. My job is to open file attachments and click links. And you're telling me not to do that and expecting the user to be able to discern between those things. And there, there, there's no way that model is ever going to work. You're 100 percent right, right? So let's you know if you take a step back and think about you know, what what is the basis for a lot of these problems. It is it is the I would express it as sort of like the noblest intent of software developers, right? So if I'm building an email client, if I'm building an email system, I want it to be the robust center of your life, Tony, right? I know you're going to be getting a lot of messages. You're a popular guy. I know you're going to send a lot of stuff out, and sometimes that's going to be active content. So I'm going to build an email system that allows my clients, who I'm trying to help out, to use me for everything. I am going to be the place through which they interact with their world. And as a result, I need all of these capabilities, which unfortunately will by their nature be unable to discern between what you know, I, Jack Danny, he meant to do and what I, Jack Danny, he did not knowing the malicious purpose of the thing that had been sent to me. So the user will never be able to discern those one from another, nor will a system, regardless of its level of sophistication or automation, be able to make that judgment modulo, you know, some very limiting infrastructure in terms of what you allow to come through. So perhaps the idea here goes back to the beginning, right? Which says, but what should an email system do? Right? Should an email system be executing content? Should an email system, you know, be opening documents that have live content? Should scriptable uh, actions be inside things like PowerPoint presentations and Excel spreadsheets? And, and and then we start saying, all right, should we be sacrificing some amount of functionality that's used by some minority of the population to do some minority of their job, and and in the process jeopardize everyone else who's using it for more basic feature functionality? 
Or do we at some point in time, either as individual organizations or as groups say, I want something simpler that's safer, right? I just want something simpler that's safer. That's, that's, that's fair on some level. I, like I don't disagree with the premise. It, it rubs me the wrong way a little bit from it because it reminds me of like, it hasn't happened recently, but in the early iPhone days, you know, like mm -hmm. I had some problems where, you know, with like, you know, battery performance or, you know, different things. And I would call up Apple support and I'd be like, hey, I'm having these problems. And they would say, okay, well, you know, if you just turn off, turn off Bluetooth and turn on, turn this off and turn that off and then disable these features, then it, that won't happen. I'm like, okay, but I paid for the fucking features. I hear you. I don't, I, I don't want you to tell me that the solution is for me to handicap the functionality of my device. I want you to fix the device. <laughs> sure, sure. But, but that, that one would argue, right, that an iPhone is a connection device, right? So what you're saying is the fact that some of the connected functionality, which is the only reason you purchased it, doesn't work correctly. I would argue that if you bought, um, and I don't mean to be calling out Microsoft because they've done a wonderful job of improving their security in the time that I've been in the industry, that's for sure. But I didn't buy PowerPoint so it could kick off shell scripts that would then fetch and download content. That is not its purpose, right? I did not, I did not purchase an email program that's, that'll show me rendered graphics because it could also open random PDF objects that would be able to execute code within them. I didn't buy a printer Right, so they'll be able to di you know digest and regurgitate the output of PDF, and PDF would also be able to execute content. You know, I didn't I didn't buy it for that. It is the nature of good companies to try to do as much as they can for the customers. But I think sometimes doing that much has jeopardized the majority of the value that they would bring. Right, and we saw this you know before Bill Gates' memo back in it's got to be twenty years now, twenty years ago now, where he said, listen, we got to stop new development for a while. Well, we decide how we're going to address all these security things because he and Microsoft trustworthy computing memo, right? And he said because however much value we're providing, we're introducing so much risk that our customers are going to begin to trust us less. And so let's do the right thing and get in front of this. And they did, right? And uh, obviously, you know, nothing is perfect, but they made the conscious decision to put less stuff inside some of the bags and spend more time trying to make the stuff that was already there a little bit more secure and reprioritize. And I thought that that was the right move, right? It's hard to do that when you think you're selling features, but when you realize that, I don't know what your numbers are showing, but especially in the security industry, 60 or 70% of functionality never gets exercised. Maybe there's just too much stuff in the bag and maybe somebody would be super happy with a much more secure, if somewhat simplified version of the tools they already have. Maybe. Um, I would also then though, pull this all the way back to what we were talking about earlier and what we were talking about before we started recording, which is, Ultimately, like no matter how good of a tool I give you, whether it's whether it's just making a more secure version of PowerPoint that has less, you know, less risky functionality built into it or, or, or potential risk functionality built into it, or if it's giving you a better firewall, giving you a better endpoint protection, anti-malware, whatever, whatever the product is, um, even if it's great, it's only really great today. Right. It's only great right now, and it's only great if it's configured properly. It's only great if it's managed properly, and all these things. It's and and you know. So to use your own analogy, it would be like if the hospital could sell you like an open heart surgery kit. And say, yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. These are two. Give you all the tools you need to perform open heart surgery. It's all right here in this box. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are two. These are two different and really important discussions. And and as you know, Tony, my belief is that ultimately security ends up as a service, right? It just has to. The nature of the continually changing threat across a very diverse set of architectures and platforms says it's a lot like healthcare, right? Where I need specialists who are always looking into the most recent versions of very specific forms of diseases and diseases themselves and other kinds of illnesses and bone breaks and what have you. I need an entire industry that's focused on diagnostic technology that'll help those really intelligent specialists pick up on when things are happening as early as possible. Then I need another whole set of industries which are focused on treatment technologies, which will help the good advice of these healthcare providers in the most efficient way possible, help people feel better. And I need a system that invests in all of those things so that on Monday, when you go in because you broke your leg, and Tuesday, I go in because I've been feeling nauseous for a couple of weeks and I don't know why, that system can support the expertise and the infrastructure and the equipment and the treatment to solve both of our problems, right? That's healthcare and that's security, right? The only thing that morphs and, and mutates faster, right, than human diseases is malware, right? Just as a really quick example, hundreds of thousands of slightly mutated new versions of malware every day. And so we need a system which is as flexible as healthcare to handle the new threats that show up so that they're in a, in a service, like a healthcare service, but that's now providing cyber health more or less. You've got in organizations which are focused on, all right, how do I detect the latest form of this kind of attack? How do I detect the new equipment for that, that form of attack? How to resolve this, how do I respond? But the customer doesn't have to be that polyglot, right? It doesn't have to speak all the different languages associated with security. What they know is they say, listen, security providing service, I would like to buy healthcare insurance from you. I'd like to buy you know, security from you. And what that means is you're going to apply all of your knowledge across the broad base of customers and all the dollars that you're investing and your history inside this industry to make sure I'm protected as best I can be against the things that are likely to come against me. And you stay up to date because that's your backyard. That's your area of expertise. It's never going to be mine. I'm an awesome hospital or automobile manufacturer or, or designer, right? I'm one of those wonderful things. I don't have to be a security expert, nor do I have to staff myself with hundreds of them to solve this problem. Well, and what's funny is companies take security more personally, like I think, you know, because you're protecting intellectual property, you're protecting, you know, corporate trade secrets and, and, and things like that. And so I think there's a reluctance sometimes to let anyone else have the keys to that. But in every other aspect of a business, you know, you hire, you, you don't, you don't, nobody hires full-time employees to vacuum the floors and clean the, and, and clean out the trash cans. You hire a janitorial service for that. You know, you hire facilities management to take care of, uh, you know, plumbing and, and HVAC stuff. Like companies aren't, aren't building those out internally. And yet companies strive to hire security professionals and build out internally that aspect, which is yeah. crucial yeah. to the functioning of the business. Yeah. But we, we, you know, I think that as an industry and I'll count myself among it, but we, you know, we have, successfully you know created an industry where the people who are responsible for articulating the security strategy and the acquisition of services are often the security people inside the companies right and so they are best served in terms of their own enlightened personal self-interest and maybe they think it's the best thing for the company but they are more incented perhaps to take control of it themselves in exactly the way you just described 
think about RIP, think about this, think about that. And the organizations which are manufacturing the technologies are most incented to make it look as though those people will be able to execute with them and make the organization secure. There are very few parts of an organization or our industry or the market as a whole, which are incented to say, wow, dude, this is really hard, right? This isn't like improving database performance. This isn't like you know transforming myself into another platform. This is about institutionally figuring out how do I stay on top of all these varied problems and, and topics that are changing day to day in an industry where we know well there simply aren't anywhere near enough people who are expert in it to supply the industry's needs in the way they're going to have to. So it says service provider, service provider, service provider. Well, so I'm, I'm, I'm reading this book right now called Range, and I can never remember the author's name, but the, the premise of the book is talking about, you know, kind of the Tiger Woods method of 10,000 hours to, to become an expert and, and your whole life is focused on that one thing versus being more of a renaissance man, jack of all trades and 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 which one is which one is more likely to lead to success. And it's a very interesting book, but the, the part that I just got done with, it talked uh, about pattern recognition. It talked about how there's people who, you know, whether they were chess masters and I talked about the experiment where the guy like, you know, basically used his own daughters as pawns in his experiment and like raised them from birth to be chess masters um, just to prove that that, that that could be done. Um, and there's like, you know, there's I, I don't know the guy's name, but somebody who was uh, uh, like a he, he was a pianist who knew like 7000 songs off the top of his head. And but they did different experiments of. Where at face value, it seems like those people just have, you know, photographic memories or they just they have absolute recall. And what they found out is that's not true. What they have is pattern recognition. The chess player is very good at recognizing chess patterns. That doesn't mean they can do anything other than chess. Mm -hmm. And with the with the, the the pianist, you know, they gave some like, you know, they could play play a song and he could like instantly remember and play that song. But when they played him a series of like discordant notes, he could not recall them because it didn't make any sense to his brain. He's used to, you know, pattern, the notes go in patterns like this. <laughs> the same thing applies on a cybersecurity level. I had a conversation 10 years ago uh, with uh, it actually it started with a conversation I had with Stuart. Uh, and then I asked some other cybersecurity professionals. Uh, I was like, what, what are you using? What are you, what are you protecting your computer with? And something like 80% said nothing. <laughs> These are cybersecurity professionals. Oh, absolutely. And the reason for my question was my mother-in-law, uh, God bless her, uh, was constantly getting compromised with this malware, that malware, like always. And she was running like two, three different malware <laughs> you know that she had she had mcafee and semantic and you know and and was constantly getting hit and i was like well why is that and so and it, it comes back to what you're saying about like cybersecurity isn't as easy as installing the anti-malware it's not as easy as whatever tool i give you there's a level of expertise in pattern recognition the reason that cybersecurity professionals can go with no endpoint protection and still not get compromised is because we recognize the attack, you know, and like as soon as you see it, you go, oh, that looks like an attack and you just don't click on it. <laughs> sure. Or, or, or we have a, a, an unhealthy level of paranoia, right? We just don't trust any of it. Right. And so and I'm not saying I can't be hacked. I'm sure I can be right. Somebody will be able to social engineer me. 
right? But my, my view is that perhaps we are less vulnerable because we just don't trust it at all. But there's very few organizations that sell either computers or computing technology that are going to say, and by the way, you really shouldn't trust us, right? So your mother-in-law or anybody, anyone else who trusted to sort of behave in a certain way won't be as paranoid. I just, I just want to touch something you just asked because it brings up a really important comment I make a lot to folks when they ask me these questions. You said, you know, there's a decision sort of to be made or, an, uh, or a value judgment to be made between, you know, is security sort of a specialist thing or is it a generalist thing? And I, and I love that question because I think it cuts to the core of the difference between security as sort of an operational discipline and security as a strategic initiative. See, my belief is that that individual inside the company that owns security as a component of the way the business is run has got to be a generalist because the waterfront of security is vast. And the same person who's responsible for securing um, identity and access management and network connectivity and our VPN to our party relationships is also responsible perhaps to the executive committee for the way that those transactions will happen in a relatively friction-free way. So you get to know a lot about a lot of different stuff. But that individual, she's got to also make the decision about how do I understand whether my team is secure enough. And for me, that's the new generation of security service provider, right? Who can give her the information that's necessary to say, here's how we are securing your um, IAM system. And here's we're gathering our telemetry from, here are the systems that we're supporting. Um, here's the way we're going to be able to handle all of the information that you're going to be getting so that you'll understand it, so you can make your strategic decisions. So where the junction point of security meets business, that is a generalist strategist that exists inside the company. And where rapid changing technology and attackers and threat surface integrates with technology to solve a problem, that's where you need the specialists. And that's why I think it's a service bureau kind of relationship who can service the strategic ends of that executive. Well, and, and going back to the, you know, tie, tying the, the heart surgery analogy to the, uh, the, the, the range book and the yeah. generalization, surgery is one of those things that lends itself to that specialization because you know a heart surgeon becomes a great heart surgeon because they've done it enough to recognize the patterns of what's good what's bad how do you solve sure. issues that come up if you take a heart surgeon and have him do a liver transplant like technically he, he might be able to he theoretically has the knowledge to do it but he does not have the same level of pattern recognition it's not what his brain is trained to just work on autopilot and when it comes to security it's kind of the same like if, if i just if i give you again if i give you the very best but security is not your job it's not what you're focused on creating a new widget you're focused right. on you know, selling to a new customer you're focused on other things you need someone whose life revolves around security who's his who is who is invested enough to know what patterns are that need to be recognized and hones it to the to the point where as soon as they see that pattern, it's a red flag. And just to extend it, because I think it's a brilliant metaphor, if I can extend it just a little bit further, it's not that they have to recognize patterns in security, they have to recognize patterns in a very specific area of security. The threat intel researcher who recognizes when an exploit is underway is different from the one who recognizes a stolen credential attack that's occurring on a system because of process invocation, right? There'll be different expertise. So to your point, I just want to take it exactly down. The heart surgeon, maybe threat intel, 
the liver surgeon may be involved in firewall configuration management, somebody else may be in log file analytics. So I need all of those experts inside my cyber hospital, right, to do exactly what you described, because it is, it is a pattern, and I guess it's, I'll, I'll start thinking it was a pattern recognition exercise. It's like a muscle memory. We get familiar and exposed to things. It's why, you know, driving a motorcycle is easy. If you've driven a lot of motorcycle miles, driving a car is easy after you've driven a lot of cars. It's just the way it is, we well, learn. It's the it's those four stages of uh, you know what is, what are what is it? It's uh, unconscious, un like like you like you don't know what you don't know, then you don't know, then 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 you're you know you're you're good enough at it to do it with conscious thought, and then you yep. get to the point where you can do absentmindedly. You know, so I can I can drive in a car, I can get from Houston to Dallas and barely remember the drive. Right on. Yep. <laughs> Exactly right. And I think that that's what we're talking about, because you're never going to get a security organization within a company to have that much time and that much exposure. And by the way, the first time a company is attacked by a new you know, campaign is the first time that person is ever going to have seen it. If you're talking about a service bureau, only one organization is the first. Right. And then that level of awareness, that capacity to drive from Dallas to Houston or Houston to Dallas is now embedded inside the consciousness of the organization which is serving a much broader community if they've got their knowledge sharing done right right now i will say to kind of flip it and, and i'm thinking specifically about doctors actually here is i feel like that is also a potential handicap because then you have doctors who are so sure of themselves so full of themselves they've been doing this for 30 years they know what they're looking for but the thing is, they've also entrenched themselves, and they're not keeping up with what's new. And so, they, you know, and they're so they're still they're still trying to solve new problems with old solutions, kind of thing. And so, there is also an element of this of as the specialist, it is also your job to stay on the cutting edge. It is also your job to know what's coming next, and not just be like, "Look, I've been the expert in this since before you were born. Don't don't question me." Well, right. Well, I think I think the intellectual appetite of somebody in cybersecurity has got to be almost insatiable, right? It's just the way the way things are. If I think about the doctors who thrive and succeed, and that we recognize their names of broadly, it's because they're looking into doing new things. Right. Or maybe they've got an unbelievable bedside manner. You know, this 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 metaphor can be beaten to death because it fits all the way down the line. Some security services are very much about comforting that end user, helping them with awareness or helping them with incident response. Some cybersecurity services have got to be focused on more detailed examination of very technical data in PCAP. Right. So there'll be all kinds of different cybersecurity doctors, but they all should live inside a service because the patient doesn't know what they need when they land. Um, well, as we, you know, we're not going to like wind it, wind it down, but as we start to wind down, I wanted to kind of shift it a little bit and just kind of ask, uh, you know, what kind of things are you reading or listening to right now that, you know, you think other people might be interested in? This is going to strike you perhaps as funny, Tony, but I'm studying a lot about marketing, uh, messaging with Seth Godin. Um, social media management, right? Things are outside, like, as you know, Tony, but the audience may not. I've got uh, 12 patents and a bunch of different security stuff. I'm a technologist by my background, um, but I realized a number of years ago that the most critical challenge for anybody to solve in cybersecurity is convincing people they should give a damn about it, right? That is the hardest thing. Helping people to understand, as we mentioned at the top of the show, that this is a problem that's tractable, 
And they just have to think about it a little bit differently. And that is completely a language and messaging question. How do I help people understand what I mean when I say that you can do something about security? How do I help them understand in a healthy way where they're exposed so that they can make things better? And so I've been studying a ton about messaging. I would really recommend if people haven't read it, there's a book by Seth Godin called This Is Marketing, um, which, which I have found super instructive. Um, the, there's uh, an ongoing uh, workshop that he provides about people trying to find value for both freelancers and contractors. I think it's super interesting. Um, and understanding the way that people carry that kind of message into the community, super interesting. And for those of us who are dinosaurs, right, recognizing the pattern of folks like you, Tony, even though I know you say you've been around for 20 years, but the, the ability of uh, trusted voices, you know, to get the message across to an audience that's skeptical in general, I think that's huge, right? I think it's huge to figure out how one packages up and connects to audiences which may not know that they're the intended consumer of the data you have. I think it's super important because I think we have to get the business community to understand that security is their responsibility um, more than it being a technical community challenge to try to pretend we could eliminate all the vulnerabilities. That makes sense. One of the things that uh, I really love about your, like the whole doctor, healthcare, like all the analogies, honestly, that's kind of how I built my career in the, in the early years was just, I was, I was really good at analogies. I mean, and I was trying to write, I was trying to write about technology and security for the layperson. And so for me, everything, everything boiled down to, okay, what analogy can I use so that you will understand what I'm trying to say here, whether it's trying to explain how DNS works or, you know, or, or how an antivirus you know, system works or whatever, but trying to, you know, so, you know, again, my, my mother-in-law, she doesn't, uh, you know, know these things. And so like, I, like I have to, I have to put it in terms she can relate to. And, you know, and again, that's why I, I love the healthcare thing. It's like, you know, we can talk all day about security and it's going to go over a lot of people's heads or their eyes are going to glass over. They're going to zone out because they're like, yeah, I don't, I don't know security. I don't want to know security. I have no idea what the hell you're even talking about. But they can, everyone can relate to healthcare. And yeah, yeah for sure, because it, it's something that touches them all very intimately, right. right? In a way that security may not. And so I'm not, I'm not Seth Godin, but, uh, but, but I would say that it, you know, marketing and messaging is storytelling. It's you have to be able to tell a story that someone gives a shit about. Yeah, and, and the thing and the thing that really struck me about Seth's work is he's got a piece in there that really hit home with me because I was trying to figure out marketing sort of as a discipline, but I always viewed it as the way you package up something that you already want to talk about. Uh, and the way he described it was if you can't if you can't describe the thing, the value that you're trying to provide to somebody in a language that they understand, then you're cheating them out of it. Right. And in security, how important is that? Right. If I can't communicate to them why they should care about security, not like how great security is or how great my security is or why they should be frightened, but instead, you know, why it should matter to them in a language that they understand then they're never going to be successful because I haven't helped them to internalize it. And so that's why to me it was like super important. It got me thinking about security as as much a messaging challenge as it is a technical challenge. On a, on a sort of interesting related note, and we will kind of wrap up there, but not last year, but no, wait, it was it was last year. So last year was RSA was the last time that we were, you know, actually got to go someplace in person. Um, and, you know, it was, it was just you, me and Ryan. We were the only only three that went. 
But I went to RSA last year with a mission, which was to walk the floor and find out like what are the like top 10, top 15 most used buzzwords? What are the buzzwords that you walk to uh, 200 different booths and they're all using the same buzzword, even though n- you know none of them mean the same thing and nobody has agreed on what the definition even is. And on the one hand, and I've talked about this in other podcasts, on the one hand, I, I, I respect that you have to use the buzzword. Like once the buzzword has caught on, if every one of your competitors is saying MLNAI and you're not, you kind of exclude yourself from the conversation. Like, you know, people, people who are looking for something who don't know anything, people who are out in the market are like, oh, well, everyone else has machine learning and artificial intelligence. That guy didn't say the right words. So I guess he's not, he's not cutting edge enough. So on the one hand, you do have to use the buzzwords, but I came back to, uh, I came back to work and I came back to the, the clients that I work with on a freelance basis with this idea of saying, look, you can use the buzzwords when, when all is said and done, but first I need you to be able to tell me, what do you do without using the buzzwords? Like it, you have to be able to have that conversation. You have to be able to tell me in English, what does this product do that I need to care about without using these 15 buzzwords? Yeah, I think it's brilliant because for me, a lot of the buzzword is the how, right? Because very few security companies will tell you exactly what they do, not the capabilities they'll provide you with, not their aspirational entity, but rather what exactly do they do? Typically, and I think MLAI is a great example, you know, if I'm using machine learning, if I'm using machine learning, then what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to parse something that's at high volume to see a pattern to your point earlier that I can recognize, right? Because typically, at least in supervised training, machine learning is doing one thing. Unsupervised, it can help me identify patterns on its own, right? So it is a pattern recognition thing. But if what I can tell you is, my system can more quickly identify advanced persistent threats that exist inside your environment than anyone else can, or before they can hurt you, or before they can infect the second machine. That's value and it's interesting. And only then to your point, and they say, well, how the hell can you do that? Well, we use a combination and now you can start using the buzzwords, but use them in the context they're intended. You know, I, I regret, you know, over the course of the years that, that, that at least I've been doing this, the language has become so muddy I think it's impossible for a layperson to be able to sift through what the words actually mean. You can find companies which are doing um, intrusion detection, describing it as security, right? You can find companies who are doing intrusion detection, describing it as protection. You can you can find people who are talking about um, things like antivirus technology, right, as as prevention technologies, right, in the same in the exact same language as someone who's talking about. Um, an ability to stop data exfiltration as a prevention strategy. The words, while I think if I was like extremely pedantic about it, I could come up with a definition which makes every one of those things appropriate. The language has become so muddled, it's very, very hard for people to know what they're looking to buy and what they're trying to do. So I think that you know those of us who spend a lot of time talking about security have a responsibility to do what you just described. Speak in common language, speak in concrete terms, and only apply the buzzwords when it's necessary to actually communicate additional value and not just paint a picture. Yep. All right. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. It was a fun conversation. It's been a blast, Tony. Thanks for having me. All right. I appreciate you investing your time to listen to the podcast, but I also invite you to engage on social media. Uh, please go like our Facebook page and follow at Techspective on Twitter and Instagram. You can feel free to let me know 
what you like, let me know what you don't like, let me know if you love it, let me know if it sucks, and uh, let me know what products you'd like to see reviewed or what uh, questions you'd like to see answered in future posts.